I think the book of Numbers is one of those books that if you begin your Bible reading plan, this is about the point in your annual Bible reading plan where you might be tempted to give up. Uh, It is the point where you go, oh, this seems to be all about a number of censuses uh, that are taken. And that surely uh, constitutes the division of this particular book into two halves. Um, But the older title for this book was In the Wilderness, and that's exactly what the book of Numbers uh, tells us. It tells us of what happened in the life of Israel during those 40 years as they were led uh, between Egypt and into the promised land. And here we are given a picture of the meekest man on earth and the great oppression that he suffered at the hands of his own family members. And here we see Moses' response. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron, those are the brothers and sisters, brother and sister of Moses, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and they stood at the entrance of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with this prophet in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With Moses I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And Moses beholds the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow, and Aaron turned towards Miriam to behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Look at Moses' response. Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth. Moses cried out to the Lord, O God, please heal her. Please. The Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Now turning with me to the book of 2 Timothy for our New Testament reading. Here Paul writes uh, to his son in the faith, Timothy, and encourages him in the things that he is to do as a new pastor and the instruction that he is to give to the people of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Second Timothy 2, beginning in verse 22. Therefore flee youthful passions 
and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And finally, our sermon text this morning coming to us once again from Galatians chapter 5, where Paul, writing under inspiration of the Spirit, tells the church of Galatia that the fruit that is produced by the Spirit includes gentleness, as the older translations put it, meekness. And against such things as meekness, there is no law. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we have heard your word, we ask that you'd bless the reading of it. But now we ask that you'd especially bless the preaching of your word. Uh, that you would shine the spotlight of your word on our hearts. That we might understand what it means to be meek and gentle. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the TV series from about two decades back, Seinfeld, Seinfeld's balding buddy, George Costanza, in one of the episodes, if any of y'all have seen it, he is not the meekest of men. He's a very arrogant, prideful man, but also not the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, rather selfish, sometimes even gluttonous. And one day at work, during a lunch business meeting, he is caught gorging himself on a massive platter of shrimp cocktail. One of his co-workers points out the fact that he has stuffed his face full of all of these shrimp, and he shouts from across the room, Hey, George, the ocean called. They're running out of shrimp. The whole room erupts in laughter, a heartier laughter than we just heard. George is utterly humiliated. But as I said, George is not the quick, quickest guy on the draw, and he's not able to come back with the perfect comeback. And so George becomes obsessed with finding the perfect comeback so that he might save face and so humiliate his fellow co-worker. He spends days trying to recreate the perfect scenario where he can get his pound of flesh, and despite his friends pleading with him not to do it, saying, George, you will make a total fool of yourself, George will not listen to reason. Well, the time comes where George has his opportunity to strike. Once again, there's a platter of shrimp set before him at a lunch business meeting, and so George begins to stuff his face once more. But this time, George is ready. And his co-worker mocks him again and says, once more, hey, George, the ocean called. They are running out of shrimp. And the whole room erupts into laughter. And so George, with a glint of triumph in his eye, he stands up and looks at his co-worker Riley and goes, well, the jerk store called, and they're all out of you. And nobody laughs. His co-worker simply responds, what's the difference? You're their all-time bestseller. And then once again, George becomes the laughingstock of all of his peers. Here's a man who has made a total fool of himself and has devoted his uh, whole week uh, to trying to come up with the perfect comeback. 
What do you do when you have been humiliated? I don't think any of us ever uh, enjoy or wish to be the butt of the joke. And yet, unfortunately, the time comes when each of us have been. Maybe not the uh, butt of a joke, but the object of scorn or ridicule. If you uh, kind of uh, think back to your days in high school, uh, to walk down the hallway and know instinctively that there are people who are whispering about you, it is not the most pleasant experience. In fact, it is downright awful. How do you respond in times and situations like this where you become the subject of gossip and scorn? Do you try to get the last word? Do you try to have the last laugh at somebody else's expense, much like George Costanza? Do you stay up late at night dreaming of the perfect comeback, seeking and plotting your revenge? I can't tell you the number of times I've replayed conversations in my own mind wishing I inserted the perfect one-liner at just the right time. Do you wish for revenge on your betrayer? One of the things that we see here in this passage before us as it speaks of the virtues that the Spirit works in the lives of those who have put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ is the great virtue of meekness. It's translated a number of other ways in your English Bibles. I don't know what translation you're using, but it might be translated as gentleness or humility, perfect courtesy, and others will consider each of these uh, in this morning's sermon. But we must remember that when it comes time to responding to the bold and the brutal, meekness is not weakness. In one sense, we can view it as strength under control. And I'd like us to consider what meekness is so that we might learn to grow in meekness and so be conformed to the image of our Savior. That is Paul's point here in this passage. But I'd like us to do so in a way that helps model for us what it looks like to study our Bibles. So I'd like to approach this from two particular vantage points. First thing I'd like us to do is I'd like us to approach this as something of a word study. In other words, I'd like us to see the context in which meekness, this word for meekness, is used in other portions of the Bible to to see how Scripture provides the contours for what entails biblical meekness. But secondly, I don't want us to content ourselves with a word study, as the Bible also gives us character studies individuals in Scripture that serves as models for us on how we are to respond in the face of adversity. The Bible, under inspiration of the Spirit, has given to us two particular characters that are extolled for their meekness. And so we'll consider those as well. So two facets this morning. Word study, what does meekness mean in this particular context, and then character study of two particular individuals, so we might think how it is that we can be like them. You know, if we were to to look in our modern treasure uh, trove of vocabulary words, meekness is not a word we often use these days. And if we do, and you're asked to define it, I think many of us would be hard-pressed to describe what meekness really is, at least uh, in something beyond a vague way. So we should consider how the Bible uses the word. And I think Scripture approaches meekness from two particular vantage points. 
The first vantage point is this, is that here's a word that characterizes those who are poorly regarded in the eyes of the world. If you were to look at the way in which the Old Testament talks about meekness and the, the Hebrew word for meekness, it's often translated not simply as meekness, but also as poor and afflicted. You think of Psalm chapter 9, that the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. That's that same word for meekness. Or Psalm chapter 10, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Speaking of the meek. They could be men, they could be women, they could be children in a variety of positions and places in life, but they are all afflicted in a variety of ways. On the one hand, they could be afflicted under the yoke of injustice. Job in chapter 24 complains of the wicked who steal from the meek. And then Job goes on to describe who the meek really are, the fatherless, the widow, and the needy. And yet Job proclaims that it is the Lord and the Lord alone who delivers the meek by their affliction. Isaiah chapter 32 decries the scoundrel who plots to ruin the meek and the poor by slandering their name. One's immediately drawn to the, the picture in the Old Testament of Ahab who accuses Naboth falsely of blasphemy so that Naboth can be put to death so that Ahab can claim Naboth's vineyard for his very own. According to the prophet Amos, the meek are those uh, afflicted who are sold into slavery and violated by their masters. According to the prophet Zephaniah, the meek are the people scorned, derided, and trampled underfoot. They are of low estate, and of such low estate that nobody gives a second thought about them. But we also find that the meek might not be afflicted by individuals. They might just suffer affliction more broadly under the effects of the fall. According to Zephaniah chapter 3, the meek are those of low estate. Isaiah chapter 29, the meek include the deaf and the blind. Men, women, and children brought low on account of the circumstances of this life. Either by the wickedness of men or through the circumstances of living life in a fallen world. But that's just half of the equation. You see, Scripture describes the meek not simply in terms of the people of, who, of how they are regarded, but the meek are also described in terms of how they respond in the face of such affliction. And this is the second vantage point where the word for meekness is often translated as humility in the face of such hostility. Again, Zephaniah chapter 3, the Lord declares, I will leave in your midst a people meek and lowly. And he goes on to characterize the meek of such low estate. What does meekness look like? These are the ones who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They shall do no injustice. They shall speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue. And none of them shall be afraid. Meekness is not weakness. Rather, it is doing what is right despite the odds. And the focus is on the manner in which one does what is right. 
Hear the meek cry out to God, and the Lord hears them, Psalm chapter 9. He grants them their heart's desire, and so strengthens the heart of the fatherless and the oppressed, that they should no longer fear or be afraid. That is Psalm chapter 10. The meek are humbled, and so they are in a position finally to be instructed by the Lord, because the proud are the ones who have stopped their ears to the instruction of the maker of heaven and earth. The meek set their confidence not in their own strength, not in their own riches, not in their own position or of society, but rather they have set their hope in the Lord. They make their boast in the Lord. He delivers them from all of their fears, Psalm chapter 34, and they are glad. All the fears that surround the meek, and there are many, the Lord delivers them from every single one of them. In fact, the psalmist declares in Psalm 149 that the Lord delights in the meek. The Lord takes pleasure in hearing their cry, and He adorns the humble with salvation. Though the wicked stand tall today, tomorrow they will be gone, but the meek, Psalm 37 tells us, the meek shall inherit the earth, and they shall delight themselves and abundant peace. When we make our way to the New Testament, the the New Testament authors begin to expand on the meaning of this word to characterize not just how we respond to God in times of crisis, such as calling out to Him in prayer, setting one's boast or confidence in the Lord, but meekness also characterizes how the afflicted respond to others, especially how they respond to the ones who have mistreated them. Paul, in particular, uses this word in a number of his letters to characterize the tender way in which the believer responds to the one who has afflicted him. I think what's striking here in Galatians 5, you see here it's the end of the chapter, uh, as Paul talks about the fruit that is produced by the Spirit, and he lists meekness as one of the final pieces of this fruit And then as we move into the next chapter, the very first thing Paul talks about is the character of meekness. He says there is practical application and what it looks like to exercise meekness in the life of the church. Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul tells them to exercise meekness to a particular end. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual... In other words, he's speaking to mature believers. You should seek to restore him in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of meekness. It's that same word. And then he says to keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, the man recognizes that he also is a sinner. That is what it means to be spiritual. That is what it means to be spiritually mature. Not to claim that you have now exempted yourself from all temptation, that you are no longer immune uh, to the devices of the flesh, but to recognize that because the heart is deceitful above all things, you recognize the own treachery of your own heart, and that apart from the grace of God, you would go in the same direction as your brother who has just fallen into some, some sort of sin. The meek man recognizes he is not immune to vice and to temptation. 
And so this shapes how he responds to fellow believers ensnared in sin because he knows what it is like to fight temptation. So a good litmus test, a good question to ask, to evaluate our own hearts in terms of the fruit of meekness being worked out in our lives, how do we respond when we hear a brother has fallen into sin? Of course, you might mourn and weep if that's a, a close friend. But if it's, what if it's somebody that's sitting on the, that you intentionally sit on the opposite side of the auditorium from? The one that you really don't want to have much interaction with. And you hear word that that brother or sister has committed some heinous sin, do you secretly go, yes? Or do you mourn and pray for them? See, Paul tells Timothy something similar, that Timothy must be a meek man who is willing to confront his opponents. It's another facet of weakness. That takes real courage. Again, meekness is not weakness. Paul tells Timothy, you are required to confront your opponents. And yet, you're not to go about it half-cocked. 2 Timothy 2.25, rather you are to correct the quarrelsome with gentleness. You're not to fight fire with fire. I think anybody knows uh, to, to try to combat in an argument with a quarrelsome person does not... Uh, uh, get them to stop quarreling, even if you do have the perfect comeback in the last word. Things in that conversation will not end well if you try to play by the same rules. And yet you're not simply to avoid the person either. The Lord's servant must correct the quarrelsome person, but he must do so in gentleness, in meekness. And that means, in other words, that meekness entails taking it on the chin as the person shout and shouts and screams at you. Titus chapter 3 describes the meek man as well. Titus 3, 2, that the gentle and the meek man is the one who shows, that's how the ESV translates it, perfect courtesy towards all. It's not just in dealing with believers or believers who have fallen from the, uh, in the faith or even believers who have fallen from the faith, but also opponents to the faith, as 1 Peter 3 makes clear, that the meek man defends the faith not as an aggressor, but as one who gives evidence to the hope that is within him, a hope that shines forth in gentleness in respect, one of the things that Paul or that Peter gets at in First Peter chapter three is that humility, that meekness, that gentleness, that respect is not a tack onto apologetics. Rather, that the manner of our conduct is part of the matter of the faith. It is what is being defended. Because as we read throughout the whole New Testament, we are saved by grace through faith for a particular reason, that we might be devoted to good works. For the Christian, the ends do not justify the means. The means and the ends, as well as the motives, are all equally important as we are to do all things that issue from a clean conscience, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
In other words, meekness characterizes the man who responds to affliction and adversity in all his various trials and situations in life with all sorts of people, with humility and gentleness. But as we see here, God does not simply content himself in merely telling us what meekness is, but Scripture also presents before us two models of meekness, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. And this is where we move to our character study And this is why I think Numbers 12 is so important to understanding what meekness actually looks like. Numbers chapter 12, the Spirit acclaims and attests that Moses was the meekest man on the whole face of the the earth. Remember the context. Moses is God's appointed man, appointed to deliver Israel from slavery, and now Israel is in the wilderness, and they will be in the wilderness for 40 years a period that feels like a lifetime, and in fact, for most of the Israelites, it is a lifetime, as so many drop dead in the wilderness for their unbelief, for their grumbling, and for their complaining. And during this time of trial in the wilderness, the people begin to get antsy. Even Moses' own brother and sister As we heard earlier in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron begin to slander their own brother's name. Remember, Miriam and Aaron were important in the life of Moses. Miriam is really the one who oversaw Moses as he's put into the basket and ushered down the Nile. His sister is really the one that functions as the go-between between Pharaoh's household and his own mother. She is important in the life of the people of God. So is Aaron. Remember, Moses had a great fear of public speaking, and so the Lord appointed Aaron to be Moses' mouthpiece. Uh, These are important people. We can't neglect that. And yet, here are Moses' brother and sister, and they start to get envious of the unique place and position that Moses has in the life of the community. And they begin to whisper and gossip about Moses' own alleged shortcomings. Well, Moses has given us the law of God that says we can't marry outside the covenant, yet look who Moses has married. He's married a Cushite woman, not an Israelite. Who does he think he is to tell us what is right and what is wrong? Of course, forgetting that Moses' own wife, Zipporah, was more faithful to the covenant than Moses was in many respects when you read Exodus chapter 4. But it doesn't matter. They began to point out perceived flaws in Moses' life. Moses perhaps doesn't seem to be the man who practices what he preaches. Further, the Lord has spoken through us before. Why should we listen to Moses? Isn't this a whole royal priesthood? Aren't we all a nation of priests? As the law of God has told us, why do we need Moses? And they grasp for a power and for an office that is not theirs. It says that the Lord boils with anger and He descends to put them in the rightful place and He seeks to put them to death in a humiliating way. Making Miriam leprous. Making her forcing her to be cast out of the community of the people of God because of her uncleanliness. I mean, imagine the betrayal on Moses' 
from Moses' perspective? Do you think this could have cut any deeper? Do you think out of the whole host of Israel, there could have been anybody who could have betrayed Moses more deeply than his own brother and sister? To wake up one day and hear Moses, for to have Moses hear that his own brother and sister are spreading whispers about him in an attempt to grasp for power, seeking, as it were, to dethrone him. And yet, what does Moses do? Without hesitation, Moses cries out to the Lord for mercy. He intercedes on behalf of those who have betrayed him. Aaron's the one who recognizes it first. Aaron says, oh, Moses, do not hold this sin against us. Please do something. What would you have done if you were in that place? I'll get to it tomorrow. You know, can't, can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. You're just getting your just desserts. Isn't that what so many of us would have done? Secretly going, yes. Miriam deserved it. And it is true. Miriam deserved it. And yet Moses forfeits his rights. And he says, oh Lord, please heal her. Please. It's an unassuming demeanor. There's no hint of how dare you treat me like that. There's no, well, you brought this on yourself. Here we're given a picture of the meekest man on the whole face of the earth who responds in the midst of adversity and affliction. A man who, though deeply betrayed, pleads wholeheartedly for his adversaries. Moses makes none of this about him. Notice the prayer. Moses doesn't spend all the time talking about himself. Moses has no mention of himself. His whole concern is for his sister who is now to be regarded as an outcast if she is not healed. Though he has been afflicted, maligned, mistreated, he pleads their case for mercy. You see, that is meekness. This is why the Bible, our modern translations, properly will translate this word in a number of ways. Meekness, humility, gentleness, perfect courtesy. It does this because I don't think there's an English word that can really encapsulate this type of character. And yet we find that Moses, as meek as he was, could only bring Israel to the cusp of the promised land. He couldn't bring them any further. Moses himself forfeits his right to entrance into Canaan because he loses perspective of that meekness, doesn't he? When he strikes the rock, he says, look at all that I have done for you, O ungrateful Israel. And the Lord says, all right, that's enough. I'll let you see the promised land, but you will not enter into it. And yet all throughout the Old Testament, we are given through the prophets a picture of Moses as meek as he was that one will come who exhibits an even greater meekness, a meekness that is unbounded, a meekness that is perfect. And it will be found in the Messiah who will establish justice on the earth and righteousness and in meekness.
According to Isaiah 53, he would be deeply humiliated, betrayed by his very own. The prophet Zechariah says the same thing. He comes to, to those, to his very own, and his own would not receive him. Zechariah speaks of that day when Israel's long-awaited king would return, not, would return not in the pomp of a stallion, but would make his entrance into Jerusalem in the meekness of a small donkey. Showing that the, in the kingdom of the Messiah, in the kingdom of Christ, even the beasts of burden are given a certain dignity in their meekness. For it is the lowly who are exalted in the kingdom of Christ. Jesus' own, uh, his first sermon in Nazareth after he has been baptized by the Spirit, he enters a synagogue in and begins to preach from Isaiah chapter 61, saying this, that the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me. And he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the afflicted. That word there, afflicted, is he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the meek. To those of a lowly disposition, to those who have been beat down and hurt and abused and afflicted, either according to the powerful men and kingdoms of this age, or they have been brought low by the present afflictions of living in a fallen world, be it they, be they blind or uh, deaf or mute or lame, the Messiah comes to lift them uh, from their lowly estate. And standing one day on a street corner, Jesus begins to preach to the passers-by of His own meekness. That though rich beyond all splendor for love's sake, He became poor, needy, and afflicted, that He might sympathize with the poor and weak as our faithful high priest. He begins to preach, Come to Me, all you who labor, all you who are heavy laden. In other words, all you who are afflicted by your sin. Come to me and I will give you rest. Why? For I am meek and lowly of heart. Learn from me what it means to be meek, for here you will truly find rest for your souls. And our Savior's message to those who heard those passers-by, it's not just for them, because it's been and scripturated, it is a message for us as well. That our Savior bids us to come and to learn from Him what it means to be meek, to be lowly. I encourage you to read through one of the Gospels this week and just simply ask yourself this one question. How does Jesus exercise such meekness? What does it look like? How does He respond to His accusers, His adversaries, and foes? What is it that Jesus says the night that he's put on trial. When he stands before Pilate and Pilate says, don't you know who I am? Jesus doesn't pretend that he has a, you know, a lower kingdom. Jesus says, don't you know who I am? I could, I could simply, the snap of my fingers, have legions of angels to deliver me at my disposal. Meekness is not weakness. Strength under control. Jesus forfeited his rights and took it on the chin. As First Peter 2 tells us, even though he was reviled, even though he was insulted and mocked, he didn't retaliate. Rather, he continued entrusting himself all the way to the cross. To the Father who does all things justly. He was crucified, died, and was buried. 
And yet the Lord lifted up his son from his lowly estate from the grave by raising him from the dead three days later. We make so many excuses for not being gentle, don't we? Especially in response to those who have hurt us. You go, well, why did you say that? Well, he deserved it. Didn't you hear what he just said to me? Just dishing out what he gave. Right? We try to justify our own sin. We pretend uh, sometimes that we are some modern-day Elijah who has the right to call down fire from heaven on those who have maligned us. Remember Jesus' own apostles tried to do that one day? So they're going from town to town preaching the gospel and they keep getting the door slammed in their face. This kind of door-to-door evangelism. And finally they throw up their hands and say, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven? Jesus says what? You guys don't know what you're talking about. Jesus is teaching his disciples meekness. How did Moses respond when he was betrayed by his family? How did Jesus respond when he was betrayed by his friends and even by the religious leadership? Do you think what it would be to to, to be the perfect son of God and be accused by uh, these religious nincompoops that you're somehow a blasphemer? And, and that, you, that, that, that Jesus has somehow spoken ill of his own father? And yet Jesus says nothing, despite the greatness of his love for his father. Perhaps because of the greatness of his love for his father, he shows what it means to exercise meekness. Calvin, in commenting on this particular uh, uh, virtue, says this. He says, as soon as we are offended or upset, we throw off all restraint and we live like wild beasts. We take up arms to avenge ourselves and we try to create as much havoc as we possibly can as soon as we're offended, even at the slightest infraction. Then Calvin says this. But if we choose to live like wolves... We cannot expect Jesus to be our shepherd. Worldly wisdom tells us to the the strong go the spoils. Be assertive. Be aggressive. That the alpha male is the one who will inherit the earth. And yet scripture says over and over again that no, that is the one who will inherit the wind. You want to sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. However, we find that in Christ who has found the perfect wisdom from on high, Christ himself says in quoting the psalmist that it is not the strong or the proud or the mighty, but it is the meek and the humble and the gentle who will inherit the earth. It's an inheritance. It is something that is received, not achieved. The meek take it on the chin. According to James chapter 1, the meek are slow to anger. They respond in kindness without compromising the truth. I think it's one thing to respond uh, and to stand up for the truth. And it's needed. But be done in such a manner that undermines everything you've ever stood for. Both the matter and the manner are important in the Christian life. Meekness is not weakness, it is strength under control. To respond with gentility, humility, and perfect courtesy, even to those who would love to see us stumble and fall. See, our hearts are are, are so uh, deceptive, can be so self-righteous, that every instinct that we have within us tells us to act in a way that, uh, uh, that if we were to respond in meekness, that that would somehow compromise the truth. 
That we are somehow failing to stand up for what's right unless we were to be assertive and to start shouting and, and, to, and to start acting like a complete jerk. We try to whitewash it and sanctify it as, as if it's, we are somehow the super spiritual. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 that the ones who are spiritual, the ones who are truly spiritual, recognize that they too can fall to the same trials and temptations so that when they see a brother fall, They seek not to accuse them, not to expose them, but to try to restore them if at all possible and to do so in a spirit of gentleness. For even if they have uh, to expose the person, according to the the pattern set forth in, in Matthew chapter 18, it is done with tears in their eyes. Paul is adamant here that there is no law against meekness. There is no law against gentleness. Gentleness does not violate God's holy law. Rather, it expresses it. Because isn't that the very thing that Christ has done towards us? When He went to the cross. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And one facet of love is that of meekness. And so now we're called to express that same meekness that our Savior shows to sinners every day. As He is gracious and He is kind, and He beckons the unruly and the obstinate to consider their ways and to consider Him and what it means to take up one's cross and follow Him. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for giving us a Savior who is gentle and lowly. We do pray uh, that You would help us to see Jesus this morning and that you would convict us of the ways in which we fail to show such gentleness towards others. Uh, help us to respond biblically and appropriately, even in the face of adversity, that we might uh, follow the path that our Savior has trod, going before us as the trailblazer of the faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.